Hello and welcome to Lunch with Lee. I'm your host Shane Lee. Today on the show, Simon Kadich, a former Australian cricketer, playing 56 Test matches for Australia, 45 One Day Internationals, and 266 First Class matches. He scored 4,188 runs for Australia at 45.03, including 10 Test centuries. Originally born in WA, he moved to New South Wales and captained the state to numerous titles. Post-career, he's working with GWS in the AFL and is a passionate foodie. And Ty Canelli, an Irish-Australian AFL and Gaelic footballer, playing 197 matches for the mighty Sydney Swans and six matches for Ireland. He won an AFL Premiership in 2005 and in 2009 became the only person in history to win both an AFL Premiership and an All-Ireland Senior Football Championship with County Kerry. Post-career, he's involved in coaching and mentoring young players and at the Sydney Swans, regarded as one of the greatest team men of all time. Let's get started. Welcome to Lunch with Lee. I'm your host, Shane Lee. Today on the show, Simon Kadich, a former Australian cricketer, an Irish-Australian AFL and Gaelic footballer. Welcome, boys. <laughs> what an introduction. There you go, guys. <laughs> now, we're here at uh, District Brasserie. It's quite quite noisy, isn't it, boys? It's, it's probably the noisiest studio you guys have ever been in. But, um, Kat, I want to start with you, mate. I'm, I'm going to ask you straight off the bat, because you know I'm a passionate New South Welshman. You started in WA. Do you consider yourself more a Western Australian or a New South Welshman? Well, when I'm in Perth, I'm a Western Australian, so I can get back out of uh, the state. And then when I'm here in Sydney, mate, I'm definitely a New South Welshman. But uh, look, when I first started playing for WA, I never thought I'd move states. Uh, And then when it happened, you know, you don't have any regrets in life. And that was a big reason I moved here to Sydney. And I don't like telling my wife, Georgie, that that's part of the reason I came to Sydney because she gets a big head. But that was part of it, but a, a big part of it was cricket as well, and I uh, love playing with you guys here. And Ty, mate, I want to get the spelling right here. It's Ty, it's T-A-D-H-G-K-E-N-N-E-L-L-Y. It's surprisingly, I get more problems from people with the surname, Keneally, but it's Kennelly, so I'm nothing to do with Christina. But, but, I, know, but I know it's 26 points in Scrabble. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know that. <laughs> But uh, Tig, it's, it's Gaelic for Tim. My dad was Tim. Uh, it's basically a Gaelic translation, Tim. But it's Tig without the R. Tig, pronounced. There you go. But And, and like, like Simon, mate, you had to move to Sydney to start your professional career. Yeah, it's a great city, isn't it? Look, look where we're having lunch. Oh, sorry. Look where we're having a professional podcast. <laughs> it's, uh, it's outstanding, this restaurant. And, and Sydney's, it is. Look, I grew up a young man in a small country town in Ireland. The last place I thought I'd uh, grow up and have kids is, is, is Sydney and, and be living in, in Coogee. You know, I thought, you know... Coogee to me when I first arrived I actually said Coogee I looked at it and went there's a signpost and that's how I pronounced it so, so uh, yeah look but here we are great city and great people like yourselves you know and I think the sense of humour of Irish and Australian people are very very similar we don't mind taking the piss out of each other which uh, it is It is very I'm, I'm going to ask you your best Irish joke later on but um, I've got a quick one this is a real dad joke I've got three kids so um Bono and uh, the Edge walk into a bar and the barman says, not you two again. Uh. <laughs> How bad is that? <laughs> and we'll be back after a short break. Now, Kat, I want to ask you, um, your grandfather, Kadic, Croatian. Okay, that's that where you, your, your, fiery, your fiery fire comes from? Yeah, mate, the, uh, the blood's 40 degrees under the surface at the moment. <laughs> it's, it's pretty tempered. But, um, yeah, so uh, Dad's parents were born in Yugoslavia before it all got split up um, after the war. And they migrated to WA, I think it was in the late 20s. So, um, yeah, 
uh, I grew up in the, the family property in, in um, the Swan Valley where a lot of the migrants came to, all the vineyard areas, so half an hour out of Perth and, um, yeah, definitely got that Croatian blood in me. Because you, you're, you're a mad foodie, aren't you? And we have, we have a, uh, they've got this Jack's Creek steak here, which is voted best steak in the world here at District Brasserie. We'll have some of that later on. But you, you, you like your cooking as well, don't you? I certainly do. Um, I love cooking for the boys at home. They will have to cook plenty of food now because they're growing up fast and uh, they're big eaters. So, uh, yeah, no, it's, I love getting in the kitchen. I love eating. <laughs> I'm very lucky. I don't put on a whole lot of weight. And people look at me and my missus does. Or my, I've got two younger boys as well. And they're like... Just keep feeding them, and I'm exact same. I'll just eat, 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 eat. You know, it's great. I'm not a great cook. In fact, I don't cook. But well, I love cooking for the boys because they'll have dinner at sort of early five thirty or so, and then I'm having dinner then and have my own later on with George. So here's a, here's a little, little interesting fact. Um, when I first met Cato, he came in. He used to wear a lot of deodorant, and I thought, what, what, what's this guy like? You know, he's overly sort of doused himself in deodorant, thing, and he smelled like a bloody horse handbag, right? And I thought, what's he doing? But you actually got chicken pox, which led to chronic fatigue. You lost your sense of smell. Well, I never had it. Oh, right. From as far back as I remember when I was a kid, never had that uh, sense of smell. I think there's a name for it, asnomia or, or something like that. But um, I actually uh, found out there's another cricketer that um, when he interviewed me many years ago in England, has the same problem. It was Mike Atherton. So I got a bit of a shock when I heard that. But yeah, never been able to smell. And I think it's been a pretty good thing, given that uh, 20 years in dressing rooms with the likes of you boys. Yeah, I know. Some of those fast bowlers. Not, not, so, not so much you, Fuggy. But All around it, yeah. Guys like Big Joey Angel and that who, uh, yeah. It's funny when you go into dressing rooms. That's part of, when I smell and I'll go into the dressing room, you know, as a co- and you're coaching or whatnot or in any rooms, you, you get that smell. It's, it's, it's a, yeah. I can't imagine not having that sense of uh, sense of smell when you you can it just brings back memories you know so uh, since you were small as far back as I remember like from a kid I couldn't smell food or flowers so if I had to buy perfume I'd ask a shop assistant for some uh, advice so I get stitched up like <laughs> <laughs> you can see too trying those knickers on but um, I was just going to say can you, can, you, can you taste food can you taste food well, I think I can so um, I mean I, I think I can taste when it's spicy or salty or garlicky so um, yeah I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm good now Ty um, in 2005 you um, which I want to ask you it's probably one of your best years and probably one of your worst years your, your, your dad you won a premiership and your, and your dad passed away down at the age of 51 which must have been really really tough mate and there was a lot of conjecture around will you go back to Ireland um, and you signed another three years thank goodness I'm a, I'm a mad Sydney Swans man um, how did you find that time and you become the first player ever to win both a, a championship in Ireland and the AFL you must be really proud of that what was I, 23, and you're kind of, you know, you're bulletproof. Yeah. You're, you're, you're walking around with your chest out and you're running around eastern suburbs of Sydney thinking you're bulletproof. You know, you're playing with the Swans, you're in the grand final, you win the flag and you're getting the keys to the city. And, you know, you just, your world comes crashing down with that phone call. I, I don't know whether it's just, because obviously you live on the other side of the world, but it's always that dreaded call in the middle of the night. It's not a call during the day, or whatever, and, and sure enough, it was a call in the middle of the night. So you, the year itself is, in a sporting sense, and my career was such an you know, incredible achievement, but the year is, is a real sadden because, you know, I was looking enough my old man and, and my brother and, and uncle and uh, my mum were able to come out and watch the grand final, but, you know, six weeks later, um, you get a sudden heart attack and you get that call and, and it's good boy, you know, and, and it just shows how fragile your world is and how you know it's a real it was a real learning curve for me at that age just to well hang on a second mate you ain't bulletproof yeah and in hindsight it 
probably extended my career a bit because I was doing things I probably shouldn't have been doing. You know, you're drinking too much as a young fellow. You weren't being as professional as you should have been. And it was a bit of a light bulb moment for me to actually flip things and go, how fragile life is and it can be taken away from you so quickly. So um, it was a, it's a real conflicting year for me, the, the emotions of winning a grand final, and certainly for the club and the Swans and the history that that football club has gone through as far as moving up Salt Melbourne. It, you know, it basically should have been cut up in pieces and seal out of Salt Melbourne you're done, but they decided to move up and the success that they've had in 72 years to win a premiership, there was a lot of emotion around that, that time, you know, to win the flag. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, just, it's a real conflicting year for me. Did you? What was your light bulb moment? Kind of if you had to look at in, in your career, because you were you sort of made, I honestly didn't didn't realise you played 56 test matches, 45 one day, like 266. Mate, an awesome career, right? I knew you were a fantastic player, no doubt, but I didn't realise how much you'd actually played because you seemed to be sort of in and out. Was that tough? Yeah, it was initially. I think when I first played, it was in the great era where, you know, it was such a hard team to break into. So I guess I didn't take it for granted, but it was hard to get a consistent run at it. And then I think the last time around, the light bulb moment for me was, I think it was in early 2007, I was in England playing county cricket and got the call saying I was never going to get picked for Australia again. Uh, They're going to cut me from the contract list. And so I just realised I'm 31, you know, where am I at? What am I going to do? And I just thought, you know what, wherever I play my cricket, whether it's county cricket, for Randwick Petersham in club cricket, for New South Wales, I'm just going to enjoy it, try and score as many runs as I can and win as many games of cricket as I can for my team. And um, being captain at the time, I think that really helped because that year coming back for New South Wales, um, we had Phil Hughes debut and Kawaja and all these young kids, Steve Smith. And so I'd sort of look back on my time where I'd grown up, you know, learning from great players like Tom Moody and uh, Brendan Julie and Gilchrist and all these guys in WA, Langer, and had that opportunity as a young player to learn from some of the best and be mentored by them. And then I had this opportunity to try and do that for the young guys here in New South Wales. And as a result of that, it, it helped me personally. Had a great season. We won the Shield. And then within, I think, eight months, I was back in the Test team. And from 2008 to 2010, I had my best ever time in the Test team as an opener. And I think that role probably suited me. So uh, I'm really blessed to have been able to finish on a high. It's amazing we you get a knockback. Yeah. And it just can be that... It's almost a circuit breaker. We talk, call it from a sports, you know, you'd be all over the leadership component of, of sport. I mean, you, that you're just grinding and grinding. You're trying to get through, and you're just in and out of the team. And you're playing, and then there's a circuit breaker, and you're cut, and then it's just you relax and you play, and then off you go on your journey. It happens so much for sports people, and that's a great story. Well, what about this for a circuit breaker? 2004, Simon Caddish plays India. He scores 125 in the first innings, 77 not out in the second innings, and he gets dropped next test for Andrew Simons. <laughs> oh, how the fuck did that happen? Steve Wara, that was his last <laughs> test, unfortunately. <laughs> so Tugger went. Um, we went to Sri Lanka, and the, the worst part about it from my perspective was we had a month in between the test series and I went back to the Blues, scored, I think we got 100 and then a 7 against the Vicks. Went to Sri Lanka, got 100 in the tour match. Off about 100 rocks too, which was pretty quick for me. Normally it took me about five hours to score that normally, but I was like just in really good form and then to get the call, I think Alan Border tapped me on the shoulder and said, mate, you've been dropped and I was just devastated because I thought I'm at the peak of my powers. I was about 28 years of age and I thought, wow, this is my time. And then I was in and out for those next few years. And I probably didn't deal with it as well as I should have with my attitude and everything. And, and I think it wasn't until that last period in 2008 that I really embraced it the right way. And I look back and I think, I mean, the thing that stands out to me was I was really fortunate to get my baggy green from Richie Benno, who's obviously an icon of the game. 
And he said, when he presented it to us in 2001, he said, there are many more important things in life than a baggy green cap, but to an Australian cricketer, it's the ultimate achievement every time you wear it with pride and enjoy yourself. And I think when I look back now, I really... I really embraced those words in that last crack in 2008 and made the most of it. What number test cricketer were you? 384. Oh, I thought you were number two in there for Richie, but uh, <laughs> we might just take a little break now. We're um, being hosted today by Sam Lufty here at District Brasserie, which is in Two Chifley Square in the city. Honestly, this is a great venue. If you're thinking about having a corporate lunch or any uh, a nice bite to eat or even a dinner, come here. It's fantastic. They're known for their steak frits. Um, the steak is a sirloin from Jack's Creek, uh, grass-fed, which is voted best steak in the world, honestly. And they cook it on charcoal here. You will not get a better steak anywhere. Um, so we're having some of that for sure. I think we'll get a couple of dozen oysters as well. Uh, natural, they do Sydney Rock here, which is unbelievable. An O'Brien beer, maybe a nice little shabbly to kick off, and then we'll, we'll get into some red wine. But, uh, yes, District Brasserie, how good is this joint? John O'Brien is a legend of Australia's beer industry. In 2003, he dreamed of producing a great-tasting beer that could be enjoyed by everyone, free from the ill effects of mass-produced wheat and barley. John began a brewing journey blending unique aromas and flavours offered by ancient grains such as sorghum and millet. He perfected recipes over time which have led to 40 local and international awards, including three gold medals at the Australian International Beer Awards, a gold medal at the Indies and a silver medal at the Beer World Cup. Proudly 100% Aussie-owned, made in Ballarat, O'Brien Beer is Australia's most awarded gluten-free beer and widely available around Australia through major retailers and online at rebellionbrewing.com.au. O'Brien Beer, the beer that loves your back. Now, there's nothing like a healthy head of hair. Shane, when I first met you, those blonde flowing locks, well, they had a life of their own. Yes, Timmy. As they say, look after your hair and everything else will take care of itself. Now, I've got something for you too, Timmy, even with that silver fox look. It's called Main Hair Care. Oh, Main Hair Care. I know it. I absolutely love it. Yes, mate. Specialised men's hair care, targeting scalp conditions to stimulate scalp and over time improve growth. Oh, it's a fantastic product. It really is. I also note that it's all Australian, fully organic ingredients, Shane. Yep. Not only will you look good, but the scent is just wonderful. Main Hair Care. I'm going to get it on today. And that's spelled M-A-N-E, mainhaircare.com. Hey, Ty, I want to ask you, um, one of the big things, I've had a couple of the Swannies on this show. I've had Rusey, I've had Jude Bolton. Now, I've actually employed a, um, a junior reporter for, for this show, um, doing my research. It's one of, I know, one of your great mates, Mickey O'Loughlin. Now, I said, what, what, what have you got on Ty? And he said, look, mate, not much you can say on air, but he said, what I will tell you is that, um, he said, you were an off-season, you are in Ireland, cold winter over there, you came back to the first Sydney Swans um, uh, training session, it was 30 degrees and you basically collapsed to exhaustion, they said they ran over you and an ambulance was called, is that true? It's very true, (laughs) it was probably one of those times, it was actually my second year at the the football club and I've come back um, again, going back home thinking you're great and all this as a young fellow going home to a small country town and come back with my chest out and I I probably had too much uh, Guinness and uh, I've, I've it's middle of winter in Ireland and snowing and you know, no matter what train you do in the cold coming back and I actually got off the plane uh, about 6am went straight to training trained for 20 minutes half an hour and then did uh, a 10k run during the 10k run this is 2002 you know so we're not quite professional as we, as we are now and, uh, and I've just eaten the dirt I'm running I'm going 
as coach is passing me out and I'm going, oh, I could run. I was like, well, what is going on? So I've eaten the dirt and I've passed out and I wake up in the back of the ambulance and Paul Kelly's at the end of the bed and, and, and Kel's looking at me and I'm like, just a bit dazed, you know, and I was kind of coming in and I was consciousness. <laughs> so it was pretty bad, it was pretty bad dehydration. There's two paramedics standing over the top of me and they've, they've, they're looking at, and I'm looking at them and they're going, oh, you okay? And I said, yeah, yep, I'm good. And he goes, what's your name? And I've said, Tig and and, and they said spell it, and I said T A D H G, and they both looked at Spelling each other. Spelling it. This block, this off his head. Get him to hospital quick. He's out of his mind. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, it was good times. It was a good, it's a good time. But a, a great football club. Like the shift in that club, I was just tapping on before around 2002 and three, and we did a lot of stuff. And that leadership component was a huge shift to, for, for me personally as well. But the, the, the shift and how you, you, you talk about your perceived and your perception as a football team and you know, Australian cricket has a, a great perception but the Swans didn't at the time and we spent a lot of time in changing that perception and you talk about those blocks you just mentioned the Ruzi the huge influence in that and Jude and, and Mickey R and, and it, it really you know it's transpired to a lot of things that I've done in my life and, and how you actually attack things and even teaching my, my three kids now about simple things about controlling what you can control you know all these mantras that you learn from sport that you don't really value at the time when you're playing but you come out of it and you go geez there's some lessons I've learned there and, and now I'm teaching them to my younger kids and I'm saying to my seven year old control you can control don't worry about what she says don't worry about I'm, I'm going, I've turned into a coach I've turned into a full time coach I'm a dad like you know, control what you control well mate if it makes you feel better I also collapsed in my last game for Australia for very for very similar reasons in India, yeah, can't do any more. Yeah, well, I, yeah, well, it's a long story, but I I was I wasn't picked for the start of the tour, and I'd gotten the piss here for two weeks. And Trevor Holmes called me up and said, "Get to India." I flew there, got off the plane, literally two injuries, and I was playing ball on the Sachin. And I scored, I think I scored twenty nine not out off thirteen balls. I couldn't cool down, and finally walked back after three overs and just fucking collapsed. That was it. Can't give any more for your country. <laughs> the end. The end. Now, now, Cato, I want to ask you about one of your great mates, Michael Clark. <laughs> and um, and you can say what you want, mate, but uh, I won't put you on the spot. But he's a, I find the guy an enigma, right? He's, he was, I was his first captain in New South Wales. He was, I went to his twenty-first birthday. But I've had about one hundred and fifty guests on this show. He's the only guy who hasn't called me back, and I, and I just think it's, it's strange, like. I don't know what's happened to him. Um, I don't know what to judge someone, but like, I think if people put you on a pedestal or you get elevated to Australian captain. Um, doesn't mean you can talk down to people, and I find that he does that a lot. But do you, have you moved on from that incident you had with him? Or well, it's funny you ask this because a, a couple well, it must have been maybe last week. My son must have been on uh, on the net at school, and he's he said, "Oh, Dad, do you have any regrets?" And I said, "No," and he said what about the dressing room and I said what are you talking about because I haven't really spoken about it and, and for me it was like it was a different lifetime because now it's it's like you do the school pick up drop off coach kids with sport you do the homework and help them out with all that stuff and it's it, it doesn't feel like I played cricket like I don't ever think about it that much until you ask me the question so when he asked me I said look and it's hard because as you say as a dad you want to say well yeah you don't want to you don't want to condone that what I did in the dressing room but at the same time I don't regret it because I was brought up to stand up for myself and what I copped in the dressing room I wasn't going to cop so um yeah look we had a disagreement and um I've I've spoken about it plenty of times I think everyone knows the story but ultimately um we had a disagreement the song was part of it but but part of it was also what he said to me that night in the dressing rooms and I took it personally and uh reacted the way I did do do you do you regret um 
going through that situation, or did you regret not knocking the shit out of him? <laughs> <laughs> Should have punched him harder. Well, that's where we wish we had Barry, Barry Hall was a cricketer. He would have punched the shit out of him. <laughs> I've had a few guys in the dressing room regret ripping me off him. <laughs> uh, but look, but you react instinctively. I know that you know it happened pretty early in the night. Look, I hadn't had a huge amount of drinks, so I think people probably assumed that was part of it, but it wasn't at all. I know I was in control, um, but it was r- around what was said and then also around, I guess, the song being um, pressured to be sung early. Yeah, it's funny. I remember he did that. Um, he did an ad for Bonds, uh, Pacific Brands, and he had, like, his skinny little arms out and he had, like, the, you know, the, the Beckham tattoo and he was with, um, I think, Patrick Rafter and he's wearing a pair of Bonds undies and they threw the tennis ball in the air and he caught the tennis ball in his undies and it still looked like he had a vagina. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, anyway, we'll, we'll move on from Michael Clark. But, um, Ty, have you, found, have you found the transition from um, playing professional sport to business uh, tough? <laughs> Just give you a second. Been That's his answer on this question. <laughs> I don't know where to go from that. <laughs> um, I'll ask you first, Simon. Um, have you found a transition from uh, professional sport to the business world? Now, you, you were running originally the water for GWS. And I asked Ty, I said, this cat don't know much about AFL. He said, absolutely fucking nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny transition for me was I finished my uh, cricket career on the Friday night in Perth, BBL 3. We won the final. On the Monday morning, I started at GWS at 7.30. And then that next weekend, I think I was running for a pre-season game. So no water, just messages, but I had no idea what I was saying. And I had big Shane Mumford, who's massive, telling him he was losing the ruck knocks and got told in no uncertain terms to go forth and multiply by the big fella. So I realised early on, stuff these messages, I'll make up my own. <laughs> so I don't think Leon was too happy with me after a while. There's a thing with runners in the game of AFL. So you, there's a saying is, is obviously if, if you get a runner and you, the dumbest block you know, and if he understands the message, those 18 players in the ground are going to get the message. So I'm not, it doesn't say a whole lot about you, Simon. <laughs> But the best one was at the MCG. I got caught out in the middle for about five minutes. Couldn't get back. Anyway, um, the guy, the line coach, was trying to get me off, and he's getting heat from Leon up in the box. And he said, does Cat think he's out there trying to score a test hunter for Australia? He's been out there for... Yeah, I was out there trying to get hunt the ball. <laughs> you try to take speckies, were you? But it was amazing how many guys ran past on the field. I think Nick Rewald was one, and he did a double take. He's like, what are you doing out here? So I'm just trying to earn a living, mate. <laughs> That's brilliant. Just hold it there as we're going to take a quick break. If you're enjoying this episode, why don't you check out a previous episode where I spoke to another AFL legend, another Sydney Swan, Michael O'Loughlin, and gin man Stu Gregor, where we talk about all things sport and business. I'll quickly want to ask you, I'll get back to uh, the transition to you, Ty, but um, the current test team, now you, you've been an opener. Um, Who's going to open the batting for Australia in the first test match at the Gabba? It's a good question. Um, I mean, look, no doubt Warner will. Um, I mean, Bukowski had been fit and ready to go. I think he would have been a lock, uh, regardless of form, because I think we saw last summer he looks like a special young talent. 
Marcus Harris has put his name up with 100 a couple of games ago here in Sydney, but then he missed out against New South Wales twice. So What about Kawaja? He's batting at four. That's the only thing that's going to count against him, I think. Ah, right. Um, but he's made enough runs for Queensland. He's a brave man having a go at Chappelle. Like, if you look at saying he's the second best player and he's not even the best player in his family, Chappelle's great mates with Warney, you know that, right? And Warney, they're all good mates with Langer. Mate, I reckon there's going to be a barrage of... of bloody social media and media abuse towards Kawaja. So he's want to have thick skin because you take on Chappelle, he's not going to back down. He won't, but I think Uzi's at that stage in his career where I think he doesn't care now. I think he realises if it's if he's done, he's done. But I think he was, it was probably tongue-in-cheek. Knowing his sense of humour, he's probably just trying to have a laugh about it. But the problem is not everyone perceives it that way, um, and I'm not sure Chappelle will either. No, I, I just think as, as an Australian cricketer, um, there's one guy you should send a Christmas card to every year and see in Chapel for what he did. The reason that you know, we all live in decent houses is because of what Ian Chapel did. So um, he might might regret that one. But getting back to um, making the transition, mate. Now you're in, you're in coaching, you're, you're mentoring young young sportsmen. How have you found that? Yeah, um, difficult enough early. It's kind of. You always people talk to you about being ready and, and preparing for it, and I don't know whether because your mindset's so in, in the now and, and, and you're, you're focusing on next week and this game and that game, and it, there's, a, there's a real conflict around you know developing your transition while you're playing as a footballer, certainly, and I'm sure as all athletes, because you, you don't want to take your eye off the ball and you're preparing for it. So there is initial shock, and you, you get through that component of what I'm going to do, and you're preparing. And AFL, to be fair to the game, they're very good at helping players transition out of the game. There's some great programs involved in the game and, and helping and connecting. It's like, it's like anything. You know, the sporting world is, is so good at connecting people and the, the city of Sydney is outstanding. So I spend a lot of time in coaching. I'm now back involved in the education system, working at St. Catharines as well and the girls' school and, and helping the elite program. And, um, and, and it, I've always found myself helping people in the development component more fulfilling. Um, even when I was an assistant coach, I, I enjoyed it, but I didn't enjoy it horse bashing me every every week in the in the coach's boxes, as you as you as you can imagine. But um, and I'm also helping, like just trying to. We've set up this group of men, basically, trying to help men be better men. And it, it just started a mate of mine and myself. And um, it's grown about 70 men. We meet down in Maroubra every Wednesday morning. We're down there this morning at 6 o'clock. And um, we said, oh, we need to come up with a name. And I was like, oh, well, when no one's watching. I said, well, we need to, we need to you know, start living your life like you're, uh, you know, no one's watching and drop your body armor. And it's a bit, there's a lot of men's health out there. And it's not well-being. It's more of a social connect. You, a lot of blokes kind of, you know, you, you go up, you, you get to the point, you know, your 40s, 50s, and you, you disconnect because, you, you know, you start a business and it's successful or you get married. And it's more about trying to create that social connect. And you're helping suicide and you're helping depression and men, and it, it's just taken off, you know. And it's it's been brilliant. It's something I've really enjoyed. And it's Wednesday morning we do, and it's like a, the best day of the week for me now, you know. And it's it's and we're walking 60k from you know walking 60k in a day, which I'm not sure how I'm going to do it. But um, yeah, this kind of stuff where I still enjoy challenges, which has helped me transition out of. I'm, I'm very much a goal oriented person, you know. And I know that, and I give me little carrots, and I'll try and work towards that. And um, but yeah, I really enjoy, you know, I enjoy life. I'm, I'm loving being a dad. I'm loving it. You know, I'm, that's probably changed the whole perspective on life for me. Also, around you know, being a you know, young daughter at seven and two boys, five and five and three, you kind of just say, well, I don't want to. I don't wanna bring my kids up the way I was brought up. You know, suck it up, young fella. You be right, man. But well, nah, man, you're soft. Go for it. You're a gentle soul. You know, you do it. And that's that's part of probably why we started doing this. This you know, this toxic masculine that we're involved in sport. You know, you be right. Certainly, there's a place for it. You know, and, and I've no doubt about it. And tough love is there. But you know what? If if be you and and that's one of the things that I tried the underlying thing of the Lunch with Lee podcast is to talk about men's health I think as, as men we all 
you know, from being sportsmen, where there's a lot of ego and, and, and bravado, right? And, and we sort of self-diagnose everything. We put our head in the sand, and she'll be right. And it ain't otherwise she'll be right. And um, I think when you come out of a, a really insular, selfish environment, and you come into the big world when you meet a lot of people who aren't so nice, um, it can be really, really tough. It's tough, yeah. isn't it? Because you're, you're like as that an, an athlete, you're like, suck it up, you'll be right. I can't show any weakness. Yeah, that's right. It's in you to go, well, I can't show any weakness because my opponent's going to get me or someone's going to get me. It's going to get out that I'm afraid of this or I'm a weakness. Where you come into the big bad world and that component of it is, well, you know, Okay, it's okay to be you, you know, and um, and the numbers are stark, as we all know the suicide numbers, and you know, sixty men a day around the world, every every hour commit suicide. It's incredible numbers, one in nine in Australia. It's we we have the highest male use suicide rate in the world, in, and and look where we live. Yeah, I know. It's ridiculous. What are we doing wrong, you know? And that's my point about trying to help my young fellows and you've, you know, your kids, and you've, if you can do anything to help people, one person, you know, so be it. And that's all we're trying to yeah, do. Yeah, really well enjoyable. Said, now, um, so Simon, I want to ask you, um, I ask every guest on this show the same question. Um, if there was a young boy or girl, cricketer coming through, and they wanted to play professional cricket, what advice would you give them? Never give up, because cricket is such a tough game mentally. And, oh, I mean, I see this every week now, coaching the un- under-12s, is that, you know, you see the, the joys of doing well and the, the hurt of not doing well, but just that sheer passion of playing the game, and that's, that's the most important part of that age. But also, if they do want to play it professionally, which a lot of kids aspire to because they see it on TV and they want to do that later on, um, by all means, go for it. Um, but it's a, it is a long, tough road as well. There's lots of setbacks and... Um, you know, when you think about it, not a lot of days go to plan. If you if you think that a good day in cricket as a batsman is scoring a hundred, there's not a lot of them because it's so hard. So, um, but it's just yeah, you got to just keep going. And Ty, what advice would you give to a young boy or girl who want to play um, AFL or Gaelic football? Yeah, it's funny. I had this conversation with the Year Twelve girls. We're just finishing this year, and I, I just had a chat to them about it. You know, just you know, have, have belief. You know, there's so many people around the world, and so many people in your network will tell you you can't do something. You know, and and, if, and and don't let the knocks and don't be afraid to fail because you need that belief. And the better athletes will going to have it. And the self belief in, in all forms of life. You just have enough belief in yourself. You know, because people are always going to try and knock you for, for what it's worth because either they're jealous or, or they can't do it. You know, so you go for your life and, and, and have that belief in yourself. And I think that's the key sort of takeout from this podcast that you, you two believed in yourselves and you, you weren't scared to leave your hometown to, to come to a place that could give you an opportunity and you back yourself, which is been very, very frightening in a lot of ways. And um, you guys are two great examples of not only two good blokes, but two fantastic sportsmen. And um, boys, thanks for having lunch with me today. I really, really appreciate it. We're here at uh, District Brasserie. We're going to have some fantastic steak now and a few beers and uh, we'll probably tell a few more stories that we can't tell on air. Want an Irish joke? Yeah, what's, what's your Irish joke? Yes. How do you confuse an Irishman? How do you confuse an Irishman? Put him in a wrong room and tell him to sit in the corner. <laughs> That's it for Lunch With Lee this week. A big thank you goes out to our guests Simon Cadditch and Ty Canelli. Thanks to our sponsors Main Hair Care and O'Brien Beer. Make sure you hit follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from and do us a favour, hit five stars and if you're passionate, leave a review. And come check us out on our socials. I'm at Lunch With Lee on Instagram. Our official Lunch With Lee photography was done by Felicity Kelly and you can find her on Instagram at Felicity Kelly Portraits. And thanks to our producer, Dan McHugh, for always doing a fantastic job. And we'll be back next week to talk some more legends about sport, music and business on another cracker episode of Lunch With Lee. We'll see you then. <laughs>